One of the biggest lessons I've learned along the way so far is the importance of social change first before legal change. So inspiring society, inspiring individuals to be activists in their communities, to reach out to politicians. Uh, the industries that use animals and mistreat them are very, very powerful and very well moneyed. Welcome to Of Counsel. I'm your host, Sean Robichaud. Join us as our podcast profiles remarkable legal advocates from all areas of law, the professionals of persuasion, the catalysts of social change, defenders of the downtrodden, protectors of social order, and the mercenaries of corporate interests. Those who, with the power of words alone, can shape the laws of nations, define human rights, and preserve or take away the liberty of another human being. Who are these lawyers? What are their secrets? And how do they balance it all? Court is now in session. All rise. In this episode of Love Counsel, we are joined by Canada's leading animal rights and welfare lawyer, Camille Lapchuk. For well over a decade, Camille has dedicated her life to animal justice and advocacy. Through her efforts, she has exposed animal cruelty in farming, documented commercial seal killing in Canada's East Coast, and protected the free speech rights of animal activists like herself striving towards better protection of animals in Canada. Camille is now the Executive Director of Animal Justice, one of Canada's leading advocacy organizations for animal protection. She is also co-host of the popular podcast, Paw and Order. Through her continual efforts, she has shaped the social perspective in Canada and persuaded various levels of governments to reevaluate how we treat animals. Learn how she has changed so much in such a short period of time and what you can do to help her on this episode of Of Council. So I'm sitting here with uh, Camille Labchuk. I'm really excited about this podcast because, uh, Camille, you have such a unique um, practice area. And that in and of itself is a topic about how important it is to hyper-specialize and really drill down into something you love. But uh, I'm sure a lot of our listeners I, are, are going to find this episode really interesting. And I also noticed that you have an incredible fan base. Um, I'm, I'm very envious of your Twitter followers at almost uh, over 8,000 now. So clearly people love what you're doing and it's really resonating. And obviously you're making a difference. In fact, you just came from an award ceremony where you won an award uh, last night for this area. Tell me about that. Well, it was a huge honor. I won an award last night from the Toronto Vegetarian Association, and it's called the Lisa Grill Compassion Award. And they give it out annually since 2011 to um, an advocate in the community who does great work for animals. So uh, it was really meaningful to me to be recognized by my peers and so many of the people in the animal advocacy community that I really admire. Is it always a lawyer or are you... No, I think I'm the first lawyer to get it. Previously, it's gone to um, people who run sanctuaries, folks who uh, have done activism around animal transport trucks and holding vigils at slaughterhouses. It's gone to filmmakers before, but I think I'm the first lawyer. Well, congratulations. Thank you. That's great. Uh, so before we get into what all this means, I mean, I really uh, think it'd be important to talk what it means to uh, be an animal rights lawyer. But before we do, I want to ask you, how did it all get started for you? I, I presume Zoom, you know, when you're six years old, you weren't thinking, I want to be an animal rights lawyer, because uh, as far as I know, that type of law really didn't even exist at the time. So um, were your aspirations always to A, become a lawyer, and B, 
How did it transition into animal rights? Well, when I was six years old, I was actually uh, raised by an environmentalist mother in Prince Edward Island, and I spent a lot of my childhood sitting under the table while she met with politicians in lobby meetings. So my little brother and I would be coloring, and she'd be asking the environment minister to ban pesticides or do something about groundwater. So I guess my political start was was pretty early, but I wanted to be nothing like my mother for most of my <laughs> teenage years. <laughs> I uh, I did go vegetarian when I was twelve. I, I saw something on uh, the CBC. I think it was a, a documentary actually about bears being mistreated in China. I don't even think it had anything to do with animals being eaten for food, but. For whatever reason, it just sparked something in me, and I decided to give up meat on the spot. And luckily, my mom did too, so it made that a lot easier. Uh, but I eventually went on to uh, school. I worked in politics for a while, and I started to think more about um, doing something for animals because I saw a real need. I saw how the laws protecting them were pretty bad, and how there wasn't much activism being done on their behalf, or not as much as there could be. And uh, at that point, I was working for the Green Party. I worked for a Green Party leader, Elizabeth May, for a number of years, and I saw how her law degree—she's uh, a lawyer, former prominent environmental lawyer—I saw how that was a huge tool in her own activist uh, life. And I thought, well, why don't I try to do that, but on behalf of animals? So I got this idea to go to law school, and uh, off I went to U of T. That's really interesting because what what I've found among our colleagues and and even the guests we've interviewed is the crystallization of their focus often didn't come uh, until they went to law school. Because, you know, for everyone, unless you come from a family of lawyers, it's hard to even understand what lawyers do on a day-to-day. But that's really interesting that you were able to springboard off of uh, Elizabeth May's power of law and focus that. So do you think that was a huge advantage going into law school with that focus to know right from the outset, I really want to apply this with animal rights? I think it was because I spent most of my law school years focusing on what I really wanted to do. So I was co-president of the animal law club at school. I uh, wrote all of my papers, no matter what the class was, I managed (laughs) to find an animal angle to it, which I'm sure the profs really enjoyed. (laughs) Uh, And I volunteered for all kinds of animal advocacy organizations as well. So by the time I was done law school, I felt like I was already immersed in that community. So I know we were going to touch upon this a little bit later, maybe we'll return to it, but I'm always um, very interested in lawyers who hyper-specialize. And uh, since you're talking about now in law school, you know, one of the things that uh, I think is very valuable for younger lawyers or even law students to appreciate is the sooner you can make that commitment, the better it's going to come for you. And unfortunately for me, I didn't sort of realize until later on in law school that I really love criminal law. Do you see uh, sort of a benefit that comes from just committing to what you want early on? And, And how do you deal then with sort of the fear that if I commit to something too focused, I'm never going to make it uh, because I need to keep my options open? I guess I was in a bit of a unique situation in law school because I knew exactly what I wanted to do. And I also knew that uh, I wasn't really interested in doing anything else in the law. I did practice criminal law for a couple of years right out of law school, which I absolutely loved. And it was great training ground because most of the laws protecting animals are criminal or regulatory in nature. So it was really on point with what I wanted to do. But for me, I never worried about whether I would pigeonhole myself really early on because I wanted to be in that position. I wanted to be the person who was known exclusively for animal law. So I'm probably in a bit of a different situation from others. But I also do think, especially in this area, if you do want to have some practice in animal law, it's very difficult to do it right out the gate full time because the jobs just don't exist. Right. Sorry to interrupt, but I, like even at the time when you're coming out of law school, you said that you're articled in criminal. I want to talk about that. But I pres- 
presume that there really weren't, it's not like there was an animal rights law firm that you could say, okay, I'm going to go do my OCIs and be uh, applying to this firm. Like it's, it's what I can see from your um, accomplishments and what your activity is now is you in many ways um, formed what is animal law and uh, animal rights law in Canada. So how do you get that courage to say, okay, uh, not only am I going to have the courage to specialize to the degree I can, but I have the courage to say I'm going to create a whole new area of law that doesn't even really exist. Well, the whole time I was in law school, I sort of knew I was going to have to do that. And I was kind of putting that into the back of my mind (laughs) and thinking that's a problem for another day (laughs) because it's one thing to understand the legal issues, but then to have some structure within within which to operate, that's quite a different matter. So yeah, in, in law school, they teach you how to understand the, what the law says and interpret cases, but they don't teach you how to run a practice or, in my case, how to build a nonprofit. So mm-hmm. uh, I was practicing criminal law, and I just kind of got to the point where I think everyone recognized it was sort of time for me to move into what I really wanted to do. So my former boss helped me set up my own practice. And for about a year, I had an animal law practice, so private firm. I would take on clients. Um, It was a lot of animal rights groups who needed help filing legal complaints or reviewing footage and searching for legal violations. You know, even corporate stuff or charitable filings, I could do that for them. Um, But I... My real passion has always been um, trying to have a, a nonprofit that can sort of act in its own name and not just seek out clients with animal issues. So we wanted to drive the agenda. And uh, that's what I ended up doing with Animal Justice. And uh, along with a number of fabulous colleagues, we really do set the agenda. We take on the cases that we want and the legislative campaigns that we want. And that's how I've sort of managed to make it work. So return then to criminal law. How did that blend because I wouldn't think that animal rights would somehow blend into criminal law. How did that opportunity even arise and what lessons did you learn that you now uh, employ in seeking justice for animals? Well, it's actually a funny story how I ended up in that position. So the award that I was honored with last night, the Lisa Girl Compassion Award, the first year that it was given out in 2011, that's when I met my eventual boss, James Silver, and uh, his brother-in-law, Gary Grill, who are prominent Toronto criminal lawyers that I'm sure a lot of your listeners would know. Absolutely. So James and Gary were giving out the award in the name of Lisa Grill, and that's Gary's sister who's married to James. (laughs) So very much a family affair. And I happened to be on a panel that was going on before that award was being given out, a panel about animal rights. And uh, James and Gary came up after and basically said, hey, do you want to work for James as an articling student? (laughs) (laughs) And I was looking for an articling job at the time. I hadn't found one through the OCI process or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it was just exactly the right time for that opportunity. And I ended up there for a couple of years and it was uh, was fantastic. Isn't that amazing? So like, you know, very serendipitous, but at the same time, because you always had this laser focus on animal rights, it somehow the stars aligned for you and just perfectly blended in. But what about um, criminal law itself? Like, were you involved during your articles, even with litigation that skills transferred on into what you're doing today? Oh, absolutely. I think the connections are are really strong between criminal law and animal law, whether you go into the prosecution side of things or as a defense lawyer. I think there's a lot of lessons that you can learn because the few laws that do exist to protect animals, and we'll get into this, but there's not a lot. Uh, They tend to be criminal animal cruelty laws Mm -hmm. or provincial regulatory laws that are similar. So understanding that whole sphere and how those laws work is really important to be an animal rights lawyer. And now I feel like I do. 
And of course, as a criminal articling student and first year associate, you're in court every day, which is uh, an opportunity you don't really get in many other areas of practice. That's so that right. was helpful. <laughs> yeah. You certainly lose the, the fear very quickly of speaking in court. You, you have to. <laughs> you don't really have a choice to. Uh, so what then is animal rights law? I, I've, uh, we had a discussion a little bit earlier about um, the phrasing that people use. I've heard animal rights law. I've heard animal welfare law. Um, what exactly does that mean? Well, I call myself an animal rights lawyer, but it's actually somewhat of a misnomer because animals do not really have any legal rights. I would say that they have legal protections or small r rights, but the problem, so, and just backing up for a sec, those rights would be, or those small r rights would be the right not to be abused, the right to adequate food and water, um, the right to adequate shelter, some things like that, that the law does require for certain animals in certain situations. Right. But the reason I don't say those are capital R rights is because the animals have no way to enforce those rights on their own. They don't have the ability to get in the door to a courtroom. They rely on prosecutors to bring cases, which often doesn't happen for a variety of reasons. But um, if they don't have redress through that route, that's basically it. So as they say in human rights law, a right is not a right whatsoever if you can't enforce it. And I would say that's the case for animals. But more broadly, the, the field is really is really broad, actually. It encompasses basically any time that animals' interests intersect with the law. So a lot of what we do is law enforcement, trying to encourage um, authorities to enforce the existing laws, whether that be animal transport laws, slaughterhouse laws, uh, laws for animals on fur farms or factory farms. But then sometimes we veer off into really unexpected, interesting areas. Like I had to learn copyright law recently for a case because uh, the Vancouver Aquarium was suing an activist who made a film about them mm. on a copyright claim. They said, you're using our copyrighted material. So we had to get into what copyright law is all about and how that might apply to animals and those who seek to silence whistleblowers or people who expose animal cruelty. Right. Yeah, it definitely seems like... You need to know uh, quite a bit of legal skills in your toolbox to deal with animal welfare, uh, like you're saying, because I imagine, too, there's elements of freedom of speech that come into it, um, aspects of constitutional law, property rights, indigenous rights. Um, so, you know, <laughs> I guess there really isn't any limit to this. Are you always having to adapt and learn as, as things unfold? Oh, for sure. I mean, I'm, I'm sort of a specialist, but I'm also sort of a generalist because I do have to understand so much. I, like, animals are... They're all around us, yet they're completely invisible. They're kept behind closed doors often on farms and fur farms and mm -hmm. zoos and circuses. And uh, so a lot of people don't have an opportunity to think about the various ways that the law intersects with their lives and with ours. But once you start opening your eyes, you really do see that it's all around us. So one of the uh, issues that I'm sure you hear a lot is, is trying to balance these rights with other laudable goals with society. In, in particular, I'll use one example that I'm sure you get a lot is, is medical experimentation and how that um, is something that many people would feel is, is obviously it's not ideal that animals are suffering, but at the same time, people need to um, be saved as well. Uh, that perhaps is the argument. So what happens then when this sort of balancing has to happen? And the reason it sparks this question is I was listening to your podcast and, um, 
there was in mention in there that there can be a disproportionate amount of cruelty. What is your answer to people who will say to you, for example, what about medical experimentations? What about food, right? These sorts of things. What is the general response to that? I guess I would say, first of all, that uh, however bad that we think it is for animals, the reality on the ground is usually about 10 times worse. So first of all, I think people should keep in mind that they're likely enduring a lot more pain and suffering than we have any conception of just because we don't have access to see what they're enduring. And then I guess I would also say that there are pretty much alternatives to animal use in almost every area in which we currently use them. So medical research is an interesting one. And you're right that most people feel deeply uncomfortable with animals being used in experiments. And that was uh, sort of the impetus behind a lot of early animal rights activism was the anti-vivisection movement. And... I would say now people still have that feeling, but they also are concerned about their own loved ones with medical issues and do want those treatments to be available. But what I would say is uh, when you actually drill down into the details, testing on animals in the medical sense is often very bad science. If you look at the transferability rates of drug tests, for instance, uh, 95% of the results don't transfer over into human models. So some scientists are actually leading a movement there saying, you know, we don't really care about the animals, but we think this is bad science to be testing on animals because the human models are better. So there's a huge move towards uh, technology like lung on a chip or another organ on a, a chip, a computer chip that you can run simulations on. There's uh, skin sample cultures that are much more predictive of results in humans than they are uh, when you use animal models. So that's just one example. But I would say that if you actually look at the details, there's almost no area of life where we use animals where we can't replace them with something better. You know, we can sort of get into uh, minutia of arguments and, and legal arguments and things like that. But I imagine these types of arguments don't translate well to dinner parties where people are sitting around saying, well, I love steak and therefore I'll always eat steak. Is there something that you've um, learned to persuade people to at least open their minds to this issue um, that you found to be effective over the years? I think in recent years, we've seen, especially in Canada, a lot more footage coming out from firms in particular of what actually happens behind their closed doors. Previously, we had a lot of footage from the States, but Canadians were able to say, oh, that doesn't really happen in Canada, or at least we don't think it is. So I find it very effective to show people the reality of, of these undercover videos and what really goes on and the heartbreaking lives that these animals endure. I also think it's important to focus on people who are actually interested in having a real conversation and, and might want to make some change, and as opposed to people who just kind of enjoy trolling you. Right, <laughs> So sure. I try to divide my attention accordingly. Right. With great followers comes great responsibility, right? <laughs> All 8,000 people uh, in a higher level then. Where do the dialogues happen in trying to achieve these balances right now? You know, is it in politics? Is it in, in lobbying uh, governments? Um, where do you see potential legal changes coming from? What's the impetus behind that? Well, I firmly believe that uh, society leads law and not the other way around. So the state of our laws really are just a reflection of uh, what society believes and what our values are at any given point and how effectively citizens mobilize to get political action enacted based on those values. For instance, these days I focus on campaigns where the public is ready for them. Uh, so a couple examples. There's a bill in the Senate right now. It actually passed the Senate in the spring to ban cosmetic testing on animals. And that has nationwide support, over 660,000 signatures on a petition from Canadians. Uh, I think people are ready for that, and it should pass through the House of Commons as well. There's another one in the Senate still that's being somewhat obstructed by a couple senators, but it, it should move forward soon, that would ban keeping whales and dolphins in tanks. Mm -hmm. 
And again, I think probably a lot of your listeners have watched Blackfish, the film that exposed just the horrors that orcas endure when they're kept in tiny tanks. And people are really sensitive to that issue. We, we've heard about marine land and the cruelty alleged to have come out of marine land. Same thing with the Vancouver Aquarium. And uh, people are just ready and, and just don't think it's okay anymore to confine these animals. So I like to focus on change that people are ready for and enact those values that we already hold into a law. When you're describing this, it's dawned upon me that you have to see a lot of things that must be very disturbing to you as an animal rights lover. Yeah, I watch, unfortunately, a lot of terrible footage, um, lots of slaughter footage, undercover video from fur farms, from chicken farms, from pig farms, um, you know, you name it, and I've probably watched it. I've also been to the seal hunt firsthand and watched that with my own eyes, too. So I'm sure in many ways that motivates you, but I'm sure it also can be challenging to put this behind you or compartmentalize it. What coping skills have you learned to um, move on from these sorts of things? Because, you know, other lawyers, we often ask the question of criminal lawyers, how do you move on from these sorts of things? But I'm sure it's no less visceral for you. Is there, is there something that you've learned to try and put this behind you and, and fight? Well, it's difficult. The victims really are so helpless in a lot of ways. They just have almost no political power for talking about animals. So it can be challenging to, to witness those situations. Um, unfortunately, I've become used to them. Mm -hmm. So I watch that footage and I do not have the same emotional reaction that I would have 10 years ago, uh, which helps in a way, but <laughs> it also really teaches me something about how people can get used to being in those situations, how slaughterhouse workers, for instance, who have no other option and end up in that job do get used to what they're seeing and participating in, in that violence every single day. Uh, for me now, I, I find most of the time I'm, I'm good at coping with this, and I always keep in mind that at least I'm doing something about it. I think I would feel much worse about seeing these images if I felt more disempowered. But, you know, understanding that um, there are people out there working for change and that I'm playing a part in that system is something that is empowering and kind of helps me get past that. I just want to return a little bit in um, because we talked about, you know, the, the, the focus that you had uh, in law school and how it's obviously benefited you now. Fast forwarding to today, I think most people would describe your practice as hyper specialized. It's interesting because it's almost a contradiction because, as you said, you, you have to become a generalist through this hyper specialization. But one thing that I've noticed in speaking to a lot of lawyers is there's this real fear to say, I only practice this very unique area of law. What would you say to those lawyers who say it's too specialized, I can't just do one thing, even though I'm the only lawyer in Canada that might do it? Oh, I think it's a brilliant idea to be the only one occupying a field. Uh, everyone's going to find you. So here's an example. When I had my own law practice, which I only had about a year before I transitioned into running animal justice, but I didn't even have a website. I basically just you know, let people I know know that I was practicing this area. And I had all kinds of phone calls and emails and people would find me on the internet and offer me work. And that was without a website or without any marketing whatsoever. So I think if there's a demand for it and you're the only person occupying that field or you're the biggest name, you're setting yourself up for success. Mm -hmm. And probably springboarding ahead to things that you wouldn't probably get until 10, 20 years into your call because you're probably the only person that's doing it, right? So yeah. Where were some of your opportunities coming from that were surprising to you relative to how long you've been practicing in the area? Oh, I definitely helped all kinds of individuals with animal law issues, whether it be a dispute about an animal that, um, you know, a former spouse might have kept, so pet custody disputes. Um, you know, lots of legislative uh, work was going on. W one interesting thing is 
while I had my practice, the federal conservatives uh, were still in power. The RCMP decided that they would stop using fur hats with their RCMP uniforms Mm -hmm. because they tested another hat that was made from wool and they found it performed better and they didn't have to use fur. So that's great. Uh, the conservatives heard about this, and uh, a lot of their supporter base is hunters and trappers, so they were under pressure to do something about it. So they decided to reverse this fur hat situation and, and say that now everyone has to wear a fur hat again, revert back to the old policy. So I just randomly tweeted one day that if any Mountie doesn't want to wear fur, I would represent them for free. <laughs> and I got a few calls. No way. Lots of retweets and quite a few calls. Really? That's None amazing. of the cases it really went anywhere in the end, but right. because the policy wasn't as firm as they kind of made it seem, but it was an interesting one. It just goes to show, right? If you're the only one that's uh, that's there, I mean, here you have potential Mounties and stuff reaching out to you. That's incredible. So I want to talk about some some of the really interesting cases that have come before the courts. Before you know, I sort of look at the ones that I'm aware of. From your perspective, what is the favorite or leading case in Canada as it relates to your area of practice? Well, I have to say, I mean, I guess I could, I have to choose two. I have to say the Supreme Court case that animal justice intervened in, it's uh, the Queen and DLW. It was a 2016 case. Unfortunately, it's about bestiality. And we intervened because we didn't feel like the perspective of the animals was being represented in either the Crown or the defense um, pleadings. So we got involved and uh, told the court why they were interpreting the offense of bestiality, and they needed to do it in a certain way that recognized that animals had interests that were legally protected under that uh, provision of the criminal code. So, you know, the court didn't rule the way we wanted them to, but they did make some pretty sweeping comments about how animals are a matter of fundamental importance for society and recognized and validated that perspective. So I think that's really important uh, commentary that we always cite in our factums going forward. Right. And then I would say the other one is the case of Lucy the elephant, who's kept in the Edmonton Zoo. So she's the northernmost elephant in North America. It's obviously pretty cold in Edmonton in the winter and not uh, like the environment where she came from, which is Asia. And she's kept all by herself, which when you talk to elephant experts, they say is a huge no-no because elephants are incredibly social animals. They live in these matriarchal tribes. They travel dozens of kilometers a day doing things and socializing with each other, but she's all by herself. And a number of years ago, some animal advocates tried to take that to court and get a declaration that the zoo was actually violating provincial law for those conditions. And uh, unfortunately, the the court wouldn't hear it, uh, went up to the Court of Appeal, and uh, they were kicked out uh, of court on that. But the Chief Justice of the Alberta Court of Appeal, Catherine Fraser, she made um, some pretty remarkable comments in a dissent about just the importance of animal law and the importance of protecting their interests under under statutes and what what rights and protections they already do have. So it's the kind of uh, dissenting judgment that uh, really lays the groundwork for a future majority judgment in some cases that I think will be very favorable to animals. So any animal law pr- practitioner in the country would probably tell you that's the most important case. Right. And I, it kind of ties back to what you said earlier, and that is your perspective that the law essentially follows the social perspective. And if that social pushes there for people to recognize animals need more protecting then at least the the groundwork is there through the Supreme Court of Canada case and and Lucy the elephant at least there's the framework I have to say I mean I think to most Canadians that bestiality case was very very surprising and it wouldn't surprise me if some legislative change comes from that that might hopefully benefit what you're after right in the end I hope so it's been 
what is this? Uh, it's been over two years since the ruling came out, and so far the government has not acted to close the bestiality loophole. So just so everyone understands, that means that most forms of bestiality are legal in Canada right now, which I think is very far out of step with what people expect. So I do hope they plan to make some change before the next election, because it's gone on long enough, frankly. Right. It, it seems to me, in the way you're describing this, that animal rights and animal welfare is very much a long game. It's not really something where things happen quickly, but clearly there's progress from when you've uh, been active in this. It just seems to take a lot longer than what I'm sure you hope for. Well, I'm I'm realistic about these things. I have, a, I think, a historical perspective on social change, and I've learned a lot and read a lot about litigation strategies from the civil rights movement, from the same-sex marriage movement, from women's rights movements. Mm-hmm. And they all play the long game, too. And I also love the relationship between the court cases and public opinion and how they feed into each other. Uh, High-profile court cases trying to advance rights for a group of individuals, whether it be animals or a group of people, they uh, also move public opinion because there's more discussion about those issues. And maybe the first case you bring fails, but then maybe people are ready for it the second time around. Maybe legislators have paid attention and there's mobilization and activism to get the laws changed. Mm -hmm. So it's a really ongoing process. And uh, all those sort of pieces, the courts, the legislatures and the public feed into one another and contribute to this change. One case that um, really sparked uh, public interest um, was what I've referred to as the thirsty pig case. Um, And the accused, her name was Anita Krajic? Is it? Krines. Krines. So tell us about that case and your role in it. Um, this is obviously the one where she had given water to uh, a pig that was being held in a transport facility. Is that right? Or a transport truck? Yeah. So it was a, a day in late June, sweltering hot day. I think the Humidex was well over 30. And Anita and a lot of her friends and colleagues Uh, They do a lot of activism outside slaughterhouses, and they wait for transport trucks to come with pigs and stop outside the slaughterhouse. And before they go in, they bear witness to the pigs in their final moments before being gassed and slaughtered. On this particular day, uh, they were doing something they do pretty much every day, which is give water to pigs. So obviously, it's a really hot day. Canada's animal transport laws are atrocious and were last updated 40 years ago. So you can transport animals in blistering heat, sweltering heat. There's no temperature restrictions on transport. And they can be shipped for days at a time without food or water or rest. Do a lot of them die in the process? Yeah, over 2 million animals arrive dead or dying at slaughterhouses every year. And that's probably an underestimate. It's a pretty brutal process and frankly, a national shame. So what did it need to do then? On this day, she gave water to a couple of the pigs, uh, which they do all the time. It was a pretty regular occurrence with their activist group. But the day that was in question, the truck driver got out and confronted her, um, called her some bad names, and they had a little conversation about what she was doing. And he said, you shouldn't give water to pigs, you dumb freaking broad, they're just animals. And she said, you know, if they're thirsty, they deserve water. We need to be compassionate, have some compassion. So she didn't think anything more of it. But a few months later, the police knocked on her door and they charged her with criminal mischief for that act of giving water. And for any non-criminal lawyers or non-lawyer listeners, mischief is the act of interfering with the lawful use of property belonging to another person. So the property in this case was the pigs, which 
I think when this case hit the news, that was really shocking to people that you could be charged for giving water to pigs because they're property. Right. It's just not how we think of animals. Well, and it also seemed to criminalize uh, empathy, right? That people, um, or sympathy rather, that people are going to try and make an unbearable situation for animals less unbearable. And here she is before the court. So tell us how that unfolded and what your role was in it. Well, that's right. We don't have a crisis of compassion in this country, that's for sure. (laughs) But we do have a crisis of cruelty. So it was really appalling to most of the public that they were prosecuting the wrong person. Like, frankly, the transporter should have been prosecuted for transporting these pigs in really, really hot conditions. Uh, But I spoke with Anita early on after she was charged, and uh, she ended up being represented by James Silver and Gary Grill, who I, of course, used to work with. And um, the trial itself, uh, I I knew as soon as she was charged that it was going to be a pretty big thing, because this is the kind of issue that gives people a visceral gut punch. Like, what? They're really prosecuting this compassionate woman? So it did become a media circus. Uh, The trial itself had multiple return dates. They kept splitting it up. So I think she was back in court six or seven times on this. And every time it was just blanketed with TV cameras and um, celebrities were showing up. There were tons of supporters there. The courtroom was packed and the judge actually... Uh, very kindly let supporters sit on the floor and in the aisles. It was, uh, I'd never seen anything like that for a trial before. So we helped get publicity for it and uh, did whatever we could behind the scenes to help her. Mm -hmm. And luckily she was acquitted. The the judge found that there was no interference with the property. Uh, The pigs were meant to go to slaughter and they went to slaughter and giving them water didn't affect that in, in any way. So there was no interference. And I'm sure, you know, on a very superficial level, that that was a big victory. Um, From an optics point of view, there was a message to be sent. But surely from your perspective as a a lawyer in seeing what could have been done, were there aspects that were disappointing to you in the ruling that sort of seemed to gloss over a larger issue? Well, there was one thing I would have really liked to see. I I mean, I think the judge really, to his credit, listened to the evidence very carefully. He allowed in a lot of defense evidence about the state of our transport laws, about how horrible it is for pigs, Uh, evidence about how pigs are sentient and their emotional and psychological capabilities. So the court really did hear about the holistic situation, not just the act of giving the water. But the one area where I would have loved to see him take a bit more of a leap is on the issue of whether the property in question, the pigs, was being lawfully used as per the statute. So it was argued in the trial that the pigs were being transported under conditions that did violate existing transport laws Mm -hmm. because it's illegal to cause undue um, suffering during transport. So there was veterinary evidence that those pigs were suffering because of lack of water and because of the heat and the conditions they were being transported in. And I think if the judge had said, Uh, You're acquitted, Anita, because there was no interference, but also the property was being used unlawfully, Mm -hmm. so the offense can't be made out. I think that would have been a huge, huge leap. So I would have liked to see that, but it was still a win. Right. I I wonder if something broader like that was ruled upon. Of course, I'm not faulting the judge. I think it was a great result, but I wonder if that would have triggered an appeal and then larger issues all the way up to the Supreme Court of Canada make some larger pronouncements of animal rights. Yeah. Did it surprise you that they didn't appeal that decision? No, it didn't surprise me that the Crown didn't appeal because, frankly, I think by the end of that, they were very ready to let this case go. It surprised me that they prosecuted her in the first place for this. I'll never understand that decision. And I also am surprised that the pig industry was so gung-ho to do that. I think that they ultimately shot themselves in the foot um, multiple times with that case because every single time she was back in court, the news headlines were all about how the pig industry abuses animals. Right. 
Yeah, it, it, it's interesting because when you look back in retrospect, you think, what are you doing? Just let it go, right? But uh, I think you know, from, from what I saw, it seemed as though they just wanted to stop the immediacy of the protests and this would have sent a quick, sharp message, but then you got involved. (laughs) Backfired. (laughs) It sure did. Yeah. Um, so with these types of cases, I have no doubt that this comes with a lot of controversy to you and there's probably a lot of uh, visceral reactions on the other side. Fortunately, you have a lot of supporters who believe strongly in your cause, but would it be fair to say that you've received the odd name calling and insult and perhaps even threat from time to time? Oh, sure. Yeah, definitely. I mean, a lot on Twitter. People, when they're in an anonymous forum, right. feel much freer to say things that they would never say to your face. So occasionally I get some nasty people saying nasty things. But overwhelmingly, people are really supportive of this work and really interested in it. And even if they haven't heard of animal rights law before as a field of practice, they're very curious about it and want to learn more. So that being said, I mean, uh, you you obviously are very strong spirited. You believe in in what you um, are after. You have a lot of courage. But from what I see, a lot of these types of messages are perhaps foreign to a lot of lawyers who aren't used to it. What advice do you give to lawyers who have to deal with the proverbial haters? who sort of say, you know, even things like, oh, you're crazy and practicing animal rights law, it's not going to go anywhere. Do you have any advice to lawyers who either have to deal with the the so-called haters or or the trolls or anything on Twitter who are going to attack them when they're dealing with controversial issues? Well, I think the best way to deal with that is to find yourself a community of like-minded people and like-minded lawyers in particular. And just in the time since I've been in law school and practicing now, I started law school in 2009, and at the time there was really just a handful of people who were interested in this field, and now there's hundreds. Um, You know, I get emails every week from people who want to volunteer with animal justice and do pro bono work for us, and uh, all kinds of lawyers are incorporating this work into their own practice. So I would say to people, connect with those folks, join animal justice, join other law organizations that work on these issues, and uh, you'll find strength in numbers. Mm-hmm. On that, so you you obviously have a lot of strength in numbers uh, through your social media and all these other connections, but um, would you say that on a balance from what you're trying to achieve, uh, is social media a positive force for you, or is it something that you've often thought a bit of a social media existential crisis to think, do I still want to do this? It's just a whole bunch of trolls after me. What's your perspective on Twitter, for example, and, and advocating in that way? Oh, I I love social media. I think it's been (laughs) such a boon for animals. Uh, I spend too much time on it and I wish I didn't have to sometimes, (laughs) but but it's been really beneficial. I think, so I I think different social media should be used for different things. Mm. Uh, For me, Twitter is very aimed at journalists and other lawyers. So I have great legal conversations with people about arcane points of law on Twitter. And it's also a really fantastic way to connect with journalists and people in the news community. So that's my primary use of Twitter. Facebook is great for organizing, uh, and it's great for driving numbers onto a petition and sensitizing people about an issue. And uh, I think actually the the huge rise of people who say that they're vegetarian or vegan, I think that's largely been driven by Facebook, both by being exposed to more information and images and videos from slaughterhouses and factory farms, uh, but also just being able to find like-minded people and developing that community. So yeah, I use them for different things. And I just ignore the haters and the trolls. The block button is your best friend. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So I want to talk to you about your your organization, Animal Justice. Um, You've been widely recognized for your success uh, in this organization. So uh, can you tell us a little bit about it? I understand that you're the CEO of the organization. How did it come to be? And how uh, did your role form? Where, Where is it at today? 
Well, we just celebrated our 10-year anniversary this uh, this spring at a really fun gala in downtown Toronto. And it's been amazing to reflect back on the last 10 years. So my colleague Nick Wright founded Animal Justice back in 2008, and uh, I was just about to start law school at that time, and he was just finishing and saw that there was no animal law organization and really wanted to, to work on those issues. So he got it up and running. Uh, I got involved while I was in law school. I actually got a grant from U of T Law to, uh, to go there for the summer and work. And uh, that was the only way it would have worked out because the budget of the website at that point was just a few thousand dollars for the whole year. But we started to pick up a lot of speed. And uh, by 2014, when I, was, uh, when I had my own practice at that point, I was basically just volunteering part-time for animal justice as well. And we got um, a lot of new people were coming in and there was so much excitement. So we have kind of really picked up um, since then. And now at this point, we've got uh, two full-time staff. We've got several part-time staff and contractors. And we're running a lot of really important, I think, uh, campaigns that are going to change Canada for animals is my hope. So if people want to be part of that, law students or anyone, uh, how would they get involved? How would they donate? Uh, what do they do to help you do what you need to do? Well, animaljustice.ca is our website, so check that out. You can find out more information. For any law students, uh, there's actually a lot of exciting stuff happening on, on law campuses with animal law right now. So for the first year, we have now relationships with uh, most law schools in the country and their animal law clubs. So most law schools do have these campus clubs. They do events, they do speakers panels, they do uh, bake sales and fun things kind of to sensitize their classmates about the issues and teach people that animal law exists which um, I love, and I think it's a really important long-term strategy too, because the students who are in school right now, uh, they're going to be judges and politicians in 20, 25 years. That's so right. it's so important to reach people early and teach them. And there too on uh, Twitter, they're at, at Animal Justice, and your Twitter handle is at Camille Apchuk, right? Yeah, first name, last name. <laughs> so kind of segueing into media in a larger sense, as you talked about Twitter and, and dealing with media and lawyers in coming across these high profile cases. This is a, a question I think to, uh, relates to all areas of law. And I ask all of our, our guests like yourself who deal with these types of high profile cases. Uh, and that is, you know, how do you deal with media? You're in the media quite often, and I'm sure you need to be quite careful of what you say and how it affects your objectives and the organizations you re represent. So have you learned any particular skills or approaches that have assisted you in the way you approach media that might apply to lawyers in a broader sense? I actually think that understanding how the media works for, for my career and my job is almost as important as understanding how the law works. Uh, because part of what we need to do as animal rights lawyers is not just win cases in court or get stronger laws passed, it's build the public case build the public case for why those laws need to exist in the first place. And part of that, a big part of that, is doing media work. So I'm, uh, I'm pretty lucky because my background before law school was media relations. I was press secretary to the leader of a federal political party for years and uh, worked on many election campaigns. I worked for another animal rights group as a public relations specialist. So I learned a lot in, um, in those years, and I use those skills every single day of my life. But I think uh, thinking of the media as a system is the right way to do it. Um, it is pretty formulaic in a sense. The media needs certain things. They need clips of a certain length. They want certain perspectives that fit in with the narrative that they already want to present. So, um, you know, if you want to be the person, the go-to person that their 
calling for these interviews, you need to be uh, able to produce those sound bites and you need to be able to say something that fits within the, the narrative that they're interested in portraying already and put your own spin on that. So I think that's pretty important. And then the importance of um, just being able to tell a story, I think is something that a lot of lawyers already really understand because they need to for their own jobs, especially litigators who are trying to tell their client's story in court. So much of pitching to the media and getting a, a good piece out there is just making sure it's a, it's an interesting story. There's a beginning, there's a middle, there's an end, there's characters, there's tension, there's dramatic elements to it. And when you talk about what we're doing to animals, well, <laughs> there is a story. There's lots of drama, there's lots of tension, there's lots of pain. So it, it can be uh, easy to get those stories into the news sometimes. Well, thank you for that. I think that's uh, probably the most detailed uh, answer we've heard so far on the podcast and it's <laughs> I think it comes from your background and being in communications can I ask you because I want to ask a little bit more about that uh, given your uh, knowledge from a practical point of view um, leaving aside a broader objective of, of advocacy and social change if one were to just get a high profile case and a young lawyer just falls on their lap inadvertently and all of a sudden it blows up from a very practical level, how do they go about achieving that narrative that you were discussing? Is it a matter of calling the press in advance? Is it a matter of talking to them off the record? Is there any tips like that on a practical level that you could pass on? Yeah, I mean, I would say, first of all, it's uh, one thing I didn't mention in my last answer is that so much of media relations is just human relationships, getting to know journalists and becoming friendly with them and understanding what kind of stories motivate them and interest them. So I think, first of all, finding the right forum for your story, if you have a really interesting case. Is it something with great visuals that could work really well on TV? Is it something that's a bit more detailed and requires a longer print explanation? Or is it something that um, you could you could make your own video about and perhaps if the media wasn't interested initially, you could produce a video that would prompt them to be interested because the social sharing aspect of that video would be pretty high. Mm -hmm. So I think finding the right forum is, is um, probably a huge part of that. So Camille, what does a great day look like to you? Outside of the courtroom, of course. If you were to look back on a great day, well, you know, for that matter, it can include the courtroom too. What, what do you feel like I really nailed today? Well, I, I go to court somewhat rarely myself these days. I've sort of learned that I, my skills can be best placed running an organization and getting external litigators to do our cases for us who do that stuff full time. Uh, but of course, if we do have a court case and get in there and are able to put those arguments in front of the court on behalf of animals, that's always a momentous occasion because so often their perspectives are just missed in existing litigation. So we intervene in a lot of cases and anytime we can do that, it's always a, a really fun day. Uh, you know, anytime I'm able to do a high profile interview that reaches a lot of people, that's always really gratifying to me too, because I just think, well, if that perspective wasn't being presented, they would never hear about it and maybe we'll change um, a few minds. And any day I can stick it to an animal use industry that has no shame or embarrassment about using animals, that also feels <laughs> pretty good. <laughs> so we don't have to get into the bad days, but those bad days that do occur, as they do for all of us, I ask our guests, how do you deal with the stress of, of those days where you go and you feel like, you know what, I really didn't achieve what I wanted to today, or I saw something horrible? Is there um, an outlet that you have that you find helps with, with dealing with that stress as a lawyer? It, it motivates me to work harder a lot of the time. I actually had a bad day this week, and I don't have many bad days. I'm mostly pretty happy about life, but uh, I did a call-in show, and it was an hour-long lunchtime call-in, and the topic was animal rights and whether animals should be able to sue abusers in court. 
And um, all the women who called in were very pro-animal. It was really great to hear them. And then for some reason, and I think it was just kind of a fluke, um, all the men were, were awful. Uh, one guy said on air that he had decided to shoot his cat because the cat was peeing outside the litter box. He said this on the Maritime Noon call-in show. And um, I was just floored by that and shocked. And I couldn't get that out of my head for the rest of the day. I just thought about that poor cat and I thought about how awful it is that there's still people out there who have those attitudes that it's just okay to kill animals like they're disposable items because they're not convenient or they might dirty a house. Yeah, so, you know, ultimately I went home and thought about it and ruminated on it for a while and I concluded that that guy was going to be out there either way, whether he called into the show or not. And um, what it motivated me to do was just be better the next day, uh, be better able to respond to someone like that on the air and do a better job advocating for my clients who are the animals. Well, certainly brought light to the issue because I think a lot of people who are, you know, very concerned about animal rights and would never, would never cross their mind to do something like that. I think it's important to know that there are people out there like that. I think his expression of what he did, uh, that disgust probably resonated a lot more than a lot of the people who are very supportive. And maybe that gives an impetus later on to some of the changes you're after. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I think he probably did more damage to his, <laughs> his cause or whatever he would call it than, uh, than good. He's like the, uh, the big truck driver, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um, what, about, what about time management and life balance? I mean, you obviously have a very busy lifestyle, a lot of responsibilities, a lot of pressure, people depending upon you, animals depending on you. How do you manage it? Do you find tricks in organization that help you with these tasks? I would say I probably manage it quite poorly. <laughs> I don't have uh, much of a distinction between my personal life and my professional life anymore. It's kind of really blurred together. Uh, the people I work with professionally are also most of my closest friends. And so when we socialize together, guess what we're talking about? Right, right. <laughs> but I actually am fine with that. It makes me happy to do it that way. And I draw a lot of strength from being able to have those conversations with my friends who I also uh, work with every day. What about some of the uh, the tools? So like a question I ask uh, all of our guests, I'll ask you is if you had an inscription on your desk that you would read as you were making an argument or motivate you to keep fighting for what you believe in, um, what would that inscription read? Is there some sort of motivating mantra that you have that keeps you going? Well, I do like the quote that uh, first they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, and then you win. Right, yeah. <laughs> I feel like the animal protection movement has entered the fighting stage. Uh, the laughing stage and the ignoring stage is long over. Uh, these issues are in the news every day, and the industries are, are fighting back. They're suing animal activists. They know they have a lot on the line to lose because uh, people are increasingly rejecting the ways that society abuses animals. So I'm pretty inspired by that, and I feel like we're approaching the winning stage. Now, what's, another question I ask our guests is how do you uh, manage clients and, and deal with difficult clients? But you don't really have difficult clients. <laughs> you just have animals who I'm sure love the fact that you're doing this for them in a sense. What are your clients typically? Are they, are they people who are part of organizations or are they individual um, owners of, of animals? What, what is your typical client? Is there such a thing? Well, we don't, I actually technically only have one client. I'm really uh, general counsel to animal justice right. is sort of my position. So the only work I do formally is on behalf of animal justice. We take on our own cases. We're developing our own litigation. We're lobbying for different laws to be passed. Uh, so technically, uh, my client is animal justice, but we do help a lot of people when we can with just legal information about different things. Uh, one example of that is that uh, we have a bit of a side focus on helping people who identify as 
vegetarians or vegans for ethical reasons, who are facing discrimination in the workplace, in um, other situations, and service provision because uh, of their beliefs. So, uh, you know, a classic example of this is a workplace that refuses to provide vegan food at functions for employees, and they just say, no, it's, it's too bad, you, you can't do that. Or say a prisoner who's uh, in jail and the prison officials refuse to provide vegan food to them or, or at a hospital, the, the same thing. Has that issue come up in, in prisons in particular? It's huge, actually. The leading freedom of conscience case, uh, Section 2A, is actually a prisoner who was Hare Krishna when he entered the correctional system. And on that basis, he was entitled to vegetarian meals. And at some point while he was incarcerated, he renounced his Hare Krishna faith. And he decided he was no longer religious, but he still was vegetarian for ethical reasons. And the prison staff said, well, that's too bad, buddy. If you're not uh, religious, it's not going to happen for you. So this guy, he's actually a, kind of a hero of mine in a way, because as a self-represented individual from inside a prison, he appealed this to federal court and uh, won on the basis that his freedom of conscience rights were being violated by refusal to give him veg food. Interesting. Yeah, that's great. So it is a huge issue when we get lots of people emailing with those issues. Is there one um, Supreme Court of Canada case that you would like to either see reversed or tweaked as it relates to your area of practice? Well, apart from the one that we intervened in, <laughs> uh, the Supreme Court of Canada has only rarely considered animal issues. So as it relates to my area, I would just like them to hear cases in the first place. That would be a huge step. Right, sure. What about um, the change that, that, that is coming? If there's a collective will to achieve the, the rights for animals that you aspire towards, where do you see that change coming from? Basically, what should a future Camille Labchick listening to this right now navigate towards uh, as a goal in trying to get there? How does one do that? One of the biggest lessons I've learned along the way so far is the importance of social change first before legal change. So inspiring society, inspiring individuals to be activists in their communities, to reach out to politicians. Uh, the industries that use animals and mistreat them are very, very powerful and very well-moneyed. Just as one example, the dairy farmers of Canada, uh, there was an interesting story in the news the other week. They had lost a briefing binder on the floor of a political convention. And the briefing binder laid out in excruciating detail exactly how they planned to manipulate this policy resolution process and the receptions that they were holding, how they're whining and dying po politicians, mm -hmm. their key messages, their social media photo opportunities. Uh, it just was a really stark reminder, even though we know they're doing this stuff, to see it laid out in such detail, how much money, how many resources, and how much political will these organizations have right now. Uh, people who care about animals in this country are frankly not as well organized as our opposition. So we need to do a better job of lobbying politicians, of meeting just with local MPs, with MPPs, with city councillors, with politicians at all levels of government, and talking in our communities too about why it's time to uh, change our laws for animals. So really just creating that um, general sense of social change. Mm -hmm. uh, an important part of that dialogue, of course, is your podcast. So I'm going to geek out on that a little bit. So you and uh, Peter Sankoff have a podcast on animal justice called Paw and Order. <laughs> Great name. And the I name came from a Twitter user too. We put it out there that we were starting a podcast and we asked for suggestions. <laughs> and when that one came in, we're like, bingo. <laughs> I love the intro too. It, it is very Paw and Order, right? So how did that come to be? And what have you, um, what have you seen as a benefit? 
Well, Peter had wanted to do a podcast for a long time, and for listeners who don't know him, he's a University of Alberta criminal law and animal law prof and is an expert in this area. So we uh, started talking about doing it together under the auspices of animal justice, and we got it going in uh, January, actually the same time you started yours. Yeah, that's right. Around the same time. Yeah. And the goal of it is to break down legal information about animals in a way that's digestible for the general public. So uh, rather than write a law review article about some issue, we want to talk to the public about this issue. And uh, so far, the feedback that we've been getting is, is pretty good. And I think we have a reasonable following at this point. And I, I really hope that we're just inspiring people to understand more about the issues and take action in their own lives. I noticed in one of the episodes, it was the Q&A episode, um, and I think you and Peter, was it at the law school that you were answering questions? Yeah, that's right. It was in his animal law class at University of Alberta. Is it surprising to you that more people are getting involved, particularly law students, and I presume a certain passion is building in a, a larger scale? I guess I'm not surprised because it's I've been seeing it happening now for a number of years. I get phone calls and emails every single day and every single week from students who are in law school now or thinking about going and want to be animal rights lawyers in a way that just was not happening 10 years ago. So I feel like we're at a really cool moment. Yeah. Where do you think you'll be in 10 years? Uh, in 10 years, I hope animal justice will have 100 staff. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's unrealistic, but I hope we're going to be even bigger than we are now. I hope we're going to see huge legislative changes passed, banning things like cat declining, whales and dolphins in captivity, uh, restricting other cruel practices, uh, regulating firms. A lot of people have no idea that firms are completely unregulated at the federal level for animal welfare. So I think there's just tons of issues. The sky is the limit in terms of what we can tackle. And uh, I see my job at this point. Is just trying to build the organization and build the movement and make more progress. Well, I wish you all the best of luck in that, Camille. And I want to thank you so much for being part of our podcast and passing on your message. I think it's a really important one for everyone to hear. Thanks, Sean. It was a real pleasure to join you.